Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. You're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Qalam is an organization that is dedicated to making Islamic knowledge accessible to everyone. Alhamdulillah, Qalam has been able to serve so many people all across the world in so many ways. And now, Qalam has the opportunity and the ability to take its work to the next level. Qalam now has the ability to expand its offerings to people all across the world in so many different ways. Qalam is acquiring a campus, a home, where we can continue to do the work that we do and in fact increase what we do. But we need your help, we need your support to make that dream a reality. Go to qalamcampus.com and donate generously. Every single person listening to this podcast benefiting from Qalam, I need you to go there and donate and share that link far and wide and let's all of us come together, invest into our sadaqah jariyah and take this work to the next level. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Now enjoy the podcast. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihin ladhin astafa. Khususana ala sayyidi rusli wa khatimin anbiya wa ala alihin asikiya wa ashabihin atqiya ama ba'd. We continue with the book of Sheikh Abdul Fattah, Abu Ghadda, a Rasul al Mu'allim, in which he examines the life of Rasulullah for lessons on seeking knowledge and conveying it, and how Nabi taught us to be uh, influential and practicing teachers, carriers of this light that convey it from one generation to the next. Yes. We covered the first hadith in the last class of Ibn Majah in which Rasulullah entered into the masjid and there were two groups of people and he sat with those who were seeking knowledge and said, إِنَّمَا بُعِثْتُمْ مُعَلِّمًا Nabi said, I have been sent as a teacher. And then he sat down with them, honoring that group and um, conveying to us a lesson of the maqam and the lofty position of uh, people of knowledge. Is it working? Okay, go ahead. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahabihi ajma'in. Indeed, Allah Ta'ala sent Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as a teacher. Many nations are indebted to his teachings and guidance. As an unlettered guide, he was not only an insightful and great tutor, but he was in fact the greatest and most influential teacher in the world. As a messenger, he was a powerful conveyor of Allah's message. Hundreds of millions of individuals from many nations and societies in various corners of the inhabited world respect him, obey his words, seek direction through his guidance, and seek the pleasure of Allah Ta'ala by following and emulating him. The stern nature of the Arabs, their extreme crudeness and detestable temperaments did not faze them. Indeed, he tolerated their crudeness and endured their taunts and patience until they submitted to him. They rallied around him, defended him, and at his command fought the most revered people in their sight, namely their fathers and their relatives. They gave up their loved ones, their homeland, their families and brothers in obedience to him, despite the fact that he did not know how to read and write. 
Neither did he study the books of, the, of past nations or previous reformers. This fact alone will suffice to convince any reasonable man that Rasulullah alone was the primary teacher, messenger of Allah Ta'ala, and mercy to all the worlds. Carlyle has the following to say about the condition of the Arabs. They were a nation which inhabited the deserts. They were totally insignificant for several centuries. But when the Arab Prophet came to them, they became the focus of attention in sciences and knowledge. They increased in numbers after they were a minority. They gained honor after their despicableness. In less than a century, all corners of the world were, illum were illuminated by their intellects and sciences. So here you see that when Rasulullah empowered the Arabs and they came to this great prominence that they now had influence over the Roman and Persian empires and the world now recognized a people that were unknown. What was it that Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam gave these people? What was it that Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam offered these people? It's, uh, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam didn't have a training camp where everyone that's a Muslim has to do 20 push-ups a day. Or Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam didn't have some sort of a camp where everyone in Medina Manawara was enlisted in the army and they would practice their drills. And even though they did do this, people still did practice their drills and they were always sharp on their skills because they were in the habit of being prepared for war at any time. These were tribes who faced reality. But Islam in itself didn't necessarily institutionalize any such formal organization that all Muslims will need to go through this specific routine of training. Because Islam in itself, in its faith, as a faith, is not a militant faith. Islam has a military. Islam encourages jihad, right? Islam talks about the virtue of a shaheed. But in its essence, Islam is not a militant faith where things are some sort of a sophisticated army, right? As we see in other, other religions, that their faiths are very militant, right? It's all about war and dominance. In Islam, jihad plays a very important role, one that can never be forgotten. Rasulullah said, Al-jihadu madhin ila yawm al-qiyamah. That jihad will not be abrogated. The ruling of jihad will remain until the day of judgment. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa referred to jihad as the hump of the camel, right? And that's where the reserves are, and that's where the fat of the camel is. So when needed, darwatu sinamihi al-jihad. That the peak of its, of its hump is jihad. It's something that Muslims will refer back to. What did Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa offer these people, which was primary, fundamental from day one, that allowed these human beings to grow and then become not just any warriors. These people were warriors prior to Islam. Islam didn't teach them to fight. They already knew how to fight. There was no special weapon that Muslims used. There was no special striking technique Muslims used. They continued using what they were using prior to Islam. What differentiated the Muslims was their ilm, their knowledge. It was the message of Iqra being the first revelation that Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam embedded this in people Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises those who believe from you. And people of knowledge, darajat, many levels, many ranks, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevates them. These sahaba, not only did they grow in their knowledge of the world, but they grew in their knowledge of the akhirah. So when they were on the battlefield, 
they weren't fighting for the riches that their opposition held. They were fighting for shahada. They were willing to face the oppressor and even face death if that's what was required, taste death if that's what was required, because they were looking for the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you find the Romans and Persians um, saying, you know, there are these historical documents, um, letters and correspondence between the Muslim armies and their opposition, where they would say that, that it's very difficult to beat an army that has nothing to live for, that they don't desire anything from the world. Our armies are drinking the night before the battles and they're partying and they're, they're, they're on these very expensive stipends and everyone's getting paid left, right and center and they have all these care packages for them and their families. These guys, they spend their night in tahajjud the night before the battle. Before the battle starts, they're making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These people are doing dhikr of Allah. Rasulullah gave these people knowledge. That knowledge gave them perspective. And when the human being has knowledge and the right perspective, they now take control over their own life. The sad, unfortunate reality is, today in the Muslim community, there is no real knowledge being offered out there. The average Muslim does not have knowledge of Islam. So when they grow into young adults and when they're in college, they believe that Islam is a religion that is just based on tradition and obedience and doesn't have any true intellectual thought behind it. Islam doesn't offer any framework that impacts human beings outside the four walls of the masjid. There isn't really Islamic knowledge being transferred within our institutions. I personally believe that one of the greatest calamities that Muslims in the West face, at least in America, is the Sunday school. And I'm not throwing teachers under the bus. I appreciate them for working very hard and for putting their lives into it and being volunteers and giving their morning every week to come and teach our young men and women Islam. I am indebted to them and so are we all. We make dua for them. I'm not talking about any one specific teacher. I'm talking about the model itself. Somehow we believed that we can preserve Islam by teaching someone Islam once a week for three hours. And if we think this is going to work somehow, tell me why didn't it work for the Christian community and how is it going to work for the Muslim community? It clearly didn't work for the Christian community. One hour a week, one, one time a week, three hours a, 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 a month, you know, in a week about your religion is not going to teach you Islam. Whatever facts you jam into that person's mind, you know, by lunch, they've forgotten it. They're not doing their homework before they come to the class because it's the last thing that they have on their list. They have other classes that they have to do every day. Sunday school is not an important one. One young man, he approached me recently and he said to me, what are my students? And said, you know, I work with a masjid and the masjid has requested that I put together an Arabic curriculum for Sunday school. I said, what a joke, yeah. You're going to teach 11-year-old kids Arabic through a Sunday school curriculum? Are you going to so I said, what, what, what do you have in your mind? So he said, I'm going to teach them grammar. And he had this very sophisticated idea that we're going to start with this and then go to Islam Fail Haraf and then work our way through there and then do this. I said, Baba, stop all of this. You're killing time. You want to teach Arabic at Sunday school level, teach them how to read while looking inside. Maybe get them familiar with some Quranic vocab. Maybe on top of that, do some tafsir of the Qur'an where you commentate on verses or passages just to get them spiritually connected to it. 
As for all this every very super technical content, it's not realistic, right? That you offer it to someone once a week and then a week later without opening their books or without um, referencing the class that they're going to retain any of it. What should have happened and what should have happened now, what should have happened now is that Masajid should slowly walk away from making that the main source of education for the youth in our community and push the community, it's not going to be easy, to a weekly evening Qur'an class. That every week, every weekday, at least Monday to Thursday, four days a week, children come to the masajid and they study Qur'an for one hour. They study the deen for one and a half hour, two hours. This is the real model. This is when your children know that this is serious. That this is a central part of my life. The ajib element is that they study Qur'an or study Islam three hours a week while they're playing soccer for six hours a week. And they're doing Kuman for nine hours a week. That doesn't make any sense. What kind of messaging are we giving to our young folks? What kind of education are we really going to impart to them? And then at some point as a community, we need to transition from volunteer teachers who are very much appreciated and may Allah elevate them to the highest maqam and give the barakah of all the sacrifices they've made in their children, in their families and grant them immense barakah in their risk. They've made big sacrifices. But a point comes where a transition needs to occur. And that transition is that we now need people who are educated in Islam that are teaching Islam. This could be as simple as taking online classes. We live in a world where there are so many opportunities available. But every person who teaches Islam, who is a representative of this deen, whether they're representing the deen to a four-year-old child or a 40-year-old adult, needs to have grounding in the deen. Some grounding in the deen. I kid you not. How many people tell me that I lost confidence in my deen when I was in my Sunday school class? Because I was asking questions and I was scolded for asking those questions. Not too long back, I was speaking to a young person who said these exact words to me. The parents requested that I had a meeting with the young person. I sat with this young person. And the first thing the individual said to me was that, are you going to really answer my questions or are you going to toy me around like my previous teachers? I kid you not, these are the opening words. We hadn't even gotten anywhere. Like the conversation didn't even start. We didn't even say, Alhamdulillah, wassalat wassalam ala Rasulullah. Are you going to toy me around like other teachers? Or are you actually going to address my issues? And then I said to the individual that I will try my best to answer your questions to the best of my ability. But I need you to be sincere too. And then we had a conversation that went, that went on for multiple hours. And one thing that she said was that, in my previous experiences, the people that were teaching me Islam, whether it was at my Islamic school or my Sunday school, they were sincere people who understood the curriculum properly, but weren't capable of answering questions related to the curriculum. And I had tough questions that needed answered. I didn't understand Islam's position on apostasy. And the answers that were being given to me were clearly regurgitation of articles from the first Google search that they had access to and I had access to. We both had access to the same content. So that means I have knowledge to Islam that's the same as you. So why am I coming to this classroom? This is a 14-year-old, by the way. This is a 14-year-old I'm talking to. I have the same access to Islam that you do. So why am I bother, bothering with coming to the classroom? Our Islam is based on a very rich tradition of knowledge and education. The problem is that we have strayed away from that knowledge. So now when it comes for us to teach the deen or engage regarding the deen, we fall short of words. As a result of that, 
Muslims are now losing faith in their own faith. That we don't know if this is actually worth it. Is this all just hoo-ha stories? Is this all just folklore? Or is there something here? And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward the scholars of the past, the mashayikh who sacrificed their lives to convey this deen. When you sit down and you actually start reading, your mind opens and you begin to appreciate the deen. And the more it opens, the more you understand how valuable this deen actually is. In the ayah of the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Al-Yawma akmaltu lakum deenakum, it really becomes clear when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we have completed revelation with this deen. Today the deen is complete. This is a way of life for you. And all those years that I've lived previously without Islamic knowledge, without being mentored or taught properly, those were years that I could have used so much more effectively and productively had I known then what I know today. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. That it changes a person. So here he brings this point up that the knowledge that Rasulullah delivered to these people it empowered them, it lifted them. It made them into great leaders who were so intellectual and so so smart. No matter what the situation was, they had their solutions and answers ready. Yes. Muslim narrates in the Book of Divorce in his Sahih, the incident wherein Rasulullah gave his noble wives the choice of remaining in marriage to him or in separating from him. He began with Aisha who chose to remain with him. She also requested him not to inform the other wives that she chose to remain with him. So Rasulullah replied to her, Allah Ta'ala did not send me as one who causes difficulty to others, nor as one who desires hardship and difficulty for others. Rather, he sent me as a teacher and as one who makes things easy for others. Yes. So here, the second narration, he makes reference to an incident that occurred during the life of Rasulullah This happened in the ninth year after migration. At the time, Rasulullah was married to nine of his wives. And there was a grave dispute that occurred. It had to do with finances where some of the wives of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam became persistent that they wanted um, to increase the finances that Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was providing for them. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was not comfortable with this request of theirs because the policy of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was that he would provide for his family at the bare minimum and then would give the rest of it to the people. He would give it a sabqa and give it to the people and, and distribute it among them. So no one can ever say that Rasulullah's family was living it up. They weren't. Right? Today's world leaders are millionaires. They're all wealthy, super wealthy people enjoying the luxuries of life. Rasulullah was the one who was, as the Urdu poet says, Salam yeah, may salam be on the one that even though he was on the rank of the greatest kings of the world but he still remained a pauper he still remained a poor person right? that he remained a humble simple servant of Allah and nothing changed about Rasulullah so Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam 
refused their request and things became very intense and there was some back and forth. Ultimately, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam separated from all of his wives. This separation lasted for nine, sorry, for one month. This separation lasted for one full complete month. And it was towards the end of the separation that verses 28 and 29 of Surah Al-Ahzaab So in, these ayah, in this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to the Messenger of Allah that say to your wives they have one of two options. If they persist on being compensated with more expenses, then come to me, I will give you the money that you want. But you will need to then exit the marriage of the Prophet of Allah. You can no longer be married in this relationship. Messenger will not be providing his family with you know, um, exorbitant or even extra amounts of wealth while the people are in the Prophet's first and foremost responsibility is his people. And those that are in his family will need to be patient like he is patient. This is why for every time we say, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad, what do we say? Wa ala Ali Muhammad. Because his sacrifice was their sacrifice. However, But if you want Allah and his messenger in the hereafter, then know that Allah has prepared a great reward for you. Marratain. These verses of Surah Ahzab, you can read them yourself. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, praises them and also mentions great virtue for their patience. So when this verse was revealed, Rasulullah now called each of his wives one by one to present the ayah to them. They had one of two choices and they had to choose now. Either they would take their money and leave the marriage So they had two options. Either they could take the money they demanded and leave the marriage, or they can continue with what had existed in the past, the same financial agreement, and remain in the marriage and be rewarded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now Imam Bukhari narrates a hadith. He says, that when 29 nights passed by, دَخَلَ عَلَيَّ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ وَبَدَأَ بِي نَبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ entered into my home and the first person that he gave the choice to, the first person that he offered these this opportunity to, to whether remain in the marriage or exit, he said it was me. فَقَالَ So the Prophet صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ said, يَا عَائِشَةً إِنِّي ذَاكِرٌ لَكَ شَيْءٌ فَلَا تَعْجَلِي حَتَّى تَسْتَأْمِرِي أَبَوَيْكِ That I am going to present something to you. Do not hasten in answering me until you consult your father or your parents, Abawaik. Until you consult your parents. He said, I'm going to offer you what the Qur'an says, but don't answer until you speak to your parents first. ثُمَّ قَرَأَ هَذِهِ الْآيَةِ Then Allah and then Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam read ayah, the ayah, ayah to Takhir. The ayah that I just recited before you, it's called Ayah to Takhir, the ayah where they were given the choice. He read the ayah. 
فأجابت عائشة رضي الله عنها so Aisha رضي الله عنها she responded to the messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم and she said علم والله أن أبوي لم يكونا يأمراني بفراقه that Nabi صلى الله عليه وسلم said to me to seek consultation for my parents before responding because he knew that if I asked my father Abu Bakr whether I should stay in the marriage or leave, my father would say 100% stay. And Nabi really loved me and he wanted me to stay, but he didn't want to tell me. He wanted me to stay anyway. So his way of telling me to stay was, don't respond until you ask your parents. Because Abu Bakr Siddiq was always in the corner of Rasulullah so she says, Alima wallahi anna abawaya lam yakuna yakmurani bifraqihi. This was the love of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So then Aisha radiallahu anha, sorry, I'm smiling, it's a beautiful conversation. So Ummul Mu'minina Aisha radiallahu anha, she said, Afi hada astamiru abawaya? You're telling me to consult my parents on something so simple? That I, do I really need to go and consult them whether I'm going to choose to stay with you or not? How can someone ever think of choosing someone other than Rasulullah Ah, what happened to the Ummah? Aisha said, you want me to consult someone if I should choose you or not? And today the Ummah were begging them choose Rasulullah and they're not listening. La ilaha illallah. How far the apple has fallen from the tree, huh? Allahumma wafiqna alima tahibu wa tarda. Faqultu, so she then said, Inni uridu Allah wa rasulahu wa dar al-akhirah. I want Allah, his messenger, and I want the hereafter. So then after she said this, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was very pleased with her answer. He was very happy. She said, O Messenger of Allah, my request is, Ya Rasulullah, la tukhbir azwajak anni ikhtartuk. That don't tell the other wives that I chose you. Because she was thinking that if they think that, if they think that she didn't choose him, maybe someone else would not choose him and then she'd get more time with Rasulullah. <laughs> oh, I love this. I love reading this because it shows us like the internal family dynamics and the human the, the human nature of these people and the love they had for Rasulullah. Rasulullah he said to her, That if any one of them asks me what you chose. I will tell them. And then he said, as the Riwaya said here, he said, Inna Allah lam yaba'athni mu'annitan wala muta'annitan walakin ba'athani mu'alliman wa muyassira. He then said the statement right here. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not send me to create a difficulty for people. For people. Rasulullah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't send me to make people's life difficult. Mu'annit means to make someone else's life difficult. Muta'annit means to make someone slip, to make someone trip over, that make it difficult for them, kind of fool them in the moment, lead them the wrong way. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, that's not what Allah sent me. 
He has set me as a teacher and as one that will make people's affairs easy. So this right here also shows us that how Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the primary essence to his education was to facilitate the lives of people, to provide solutions for people. And this is one of the greatest uh, lessons from the teaching methodology of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that he didn't just tell people what they couldn't do. Nabi sallallahu didn't make people's lives difficult by just telling them haram, haram, haram. Rather, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would generally, if not always, provide solutions for people. And that's the Qur'anic methodology, that it provides solutions for people. That this is haram, but this is halal. Right? Allah tells us what's halal, and then also tells us what's haram. That avoid the haram, the halal is halal, so now use the halal, but avoid the haram. So for every haram, the haram, the halal is mentioned. The Quran tells us the things that we can't eat, but it also tells us all the great things that you can eat. It's all there. The Quran tells us the women that we can't marry, right? Right? Until the end. But then the Quran also tells us all the women that you can marry, which is everyone else. This is the methodology. The Sahaba, you know, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam recognized that they were struggling because they're young and they have testosterone and people have libido and they get really excited and they have all this pumped up pumped up pressure in them. So Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he offers them solutions. Ya ma'ashar al-shabaab, man istata'a minkum ul-ba'a, that those of you who have the capability to get married, then go get married. And then, Nabi said, and if you can't get married, then fast, because that'll help you. Wajat means it'll help you control your sexual appetite. It'll help you control your carnal passion, providing solutions for people. So we see here, Another thing that's very interesting about the statement of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he didn't just say no to Aisha radiallahu anha. He didn't just say no to her. She said, don't tell the other people that I've chosen you. She wanted to keep her vote. You know how they do, what do they call it? Like private bidding, is that what they call it? Where you secretly bid and no one else can know how much you bidded for the product. Right? So she's like, I don't want anyone to know what I've chosen. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam didn't say no to this. He not only did he not say no, but he also explained why he wouldn't do it. He said, I'm not, I haven't been sent to make people's lives difficult. By me not answering them, imagine how miserable they're going to feel, how difficult they're, they're going to feel, how compromised they're going to feel. That Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam went to Aisha first, the two have planned it out, and what about us? They're keeping it a secret from us. They're going to feel like the outgroup. I'm not doing all this stuff. If they ask me, I will clearly tell them what's going on. And then it's up to them to choose as they wish. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Yes, continue. Imam Ghazali Muhammad said by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's vague response by do not explicitly and directly reprimanding Aisha Allah anha, there is no there's an indication that it is desirable for a teacher to be as subtle as possible in reprimanding. So this is another point that Imam Ghazali mentions here. 
that Rasulullah didn't tell her to her face that you're being sneaky right now. He didn't tell her that you're being extremely sly by even asking me to do that. Rather, what Nabi does is he tells her he won't do it and why he won't do it. Not putting the spotlight on her. Not making her feel guilty. Say Imam Ghazali says, that when the teacher is reprimanding the student on something they've said or done, it is the teacher's responsibility to be as gentle and as soft and kind that they can do. Alright? Without being too direct. Because if you're too direct, then what happens? The student takes offense. They go into defensive mode. If I looked at Hanin and I said, Hanin, now she gets worried because she knows the statement's directed at her and she's not sure what's going to come out. And as soon as they start speaking, rather than listening, she's thinking of a rebuttal. You guys know that vibe when your parents call you out on something? And they're kind of lecturing you and two minutes into it, you're like, okay, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to kill it. I got it all lined up. One, two, three arguments ready. This is going to be awesome. It's going to be fireworks tonight. No. Min ghairi tasrih. Imam Ghazali says, without any clear mention. And that you use compassion when you're correcting someone. Without any harshness. Without being too blunt to that person. Then he says, Which basically means that when you uh, when you call someone out directly, means to to rip, to tear. Hijab al that you know that that sort of respect in that, that existed, the awe that existed between the two people gets blown out when you call someone out by face, by name. So now, she may respect me and I may respect her, but the moment I call her out by her name in a public gathering, or even privately, and I direct criticism directly towards her, she goes into survival mode. Which means there is a big possibility that this person is going to jump back at you. So Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam avoids all of that. So he says, فَإِنَّ تَصْرِيحَ يَهْتِكُ حِجَابَ الْحَيْبَةِ وَيُورِثُ الْجُرْأَةِ عَلَى الْهُجُومِ بِالْخِلَافِ and it almost empowers that person to rebel. And you call them out by face and they'll say, I'll show you too. You can call me up by my name. You think you're tough? I'll show you what I'll do. وَيُهَيِّجُ الْحِرْسَ عَلَى الْإِسْرَارِ وَيُهَيِّجُ الْحِرْسَ عَلَى الْإِسْرَارِ And it almost makes the other person stubborn. You call me out by, by name, right? You want to play that game? Okay, watch this. I'm going to get stubborn too. Make me do it. Don't tell me what I can and cannot do. So this is, he says, all of this is learned from the, uh, this one riwayah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa How Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَمْ يَبْعَثْنِي مُعَنِّتًا وَلَا مُتَعَنِّتًا فَلَكِنْ بَعَثْنِي مُعَلِّمًا وَمُيَسِّرًا This is how we do it. This is a big lesson for parenting and teachers, for any mentor, that Try to use ishara when correcting the other person. If the student that you have has half a brain and is half worth your mentorship and you've actually achieved anything in them, they'll understand through your ishara. 
So sometimes someone will come and say, Shaykh, you mentioned so-and-so thing in dars, were you directing it at me? I don't respond to those questions. If you're half as aqalmand, intelligent as I think you are, then they say, al-aqilu takfih li-shara. And what does our Shaykh say? Al-aqilu takfih li-shara. In the previous days, they would say, Al-Aqilu Takfili Shara. What does that mean? An intelligent person understands just through silent, soft gestures. You make a small gesture, like if you were to, if, there's an, if you have an intelligent child and you look at the cup, you won't have to even ask for the water. They'll get up and go get it. That, that person looked at the cup, which means that this person desires water. Al-Aqilu Takfili Shara. People who aren't too intelligent, you have to spell everything out for them. If you've ever been in a managerial position like this at corporate in your workplace, it gets a little difficult right, to manage employees like that, that you have to tell them everything. What else do I need to do? Yeah, I need to take the cup and wash it. After I wash the cup, what do I need to do? Baba, you have to dry it. After I dry it, what do I need to do? You have to put it on the shelf right there. And then, then what? When, it come, when the next customer comes and they order coffee, then you have to plug the machine in. Bob. And then you're like, it's as if you're talking to a three-year-old. But then you have to do this, and then you have to do that, and then you have to do this. That intelligent person learns just through gestures. Our Sheikh is a joke. He would say, What that means is, You know, people who like food, you just give them ishara, a little bit of a gesture that this food, and they'll come running. You don't need any tasrih for them. You don't need any clarification. They know where to show up. Okay. This is the, the uh, reflection that Imam Ghazali shows you. Okay, you can read that again. Go ahead. Imam Ghazali said that Rasulullah wasallam's vague response by not explicitly and directly reprimanding Aisha there is an indication that it is desirable for a teacher to be as subtle as possible when reprimanding a student in respect of any weakness in his character. He should display as much kindness as possible if only because in an Explicit reprimand destroys the veil of awe and causes the student to become audacious in rebelling against the teacher. It will also lead the student to continue to be insubordinate. That's some intense stuff right there. That's telling you how to avoid a nuclear situation when dealing with your own kids and students. Right? Use ishara. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he would reprimand people, he would commonly say, ma balu aqwam. He would use language like that. Ma balu aqwam. And what that means is kind of like, what, what has happened to the people? And then he would talk. If you look at the Quran, how many of the people who really made Nabi Wasallam's life extremely difficult in Mecca and in Medina are mentioned by name in the Quran? One person. Who is the one person? Abu Lahab. Other than Abu Lahab, anyone else? Abu Jahl is his name mentioned there. First of all, the Quran did... The Ummah is solid by saving us from reading that person's name. Like, reading Abu, ja Abu Lahab's name isn't too fun as it is. Reading Abu Jahl's name and Walid's name and all these people, what I've been, like, it's heavy at heart. Because you read these people who hurt Rasulullah sallallahu and it makes your heart hurt. When we read Surah Lahab, we remember this man who crushed the dreams of Nabi sallallahu That's what I see in the name Abu Lahab. The flame that burned down the house of hopes of Nabi sallallahu Nabi sallallahu thought, I'm going to go to people and tell them and they're going to accept it. And Abu Lahab was that flame who burnt down that hope of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But the Quran does so nonetheless. Why? 
I mean, there's so many fawaid of why Abu Lahab is mentioned in the Quran. Right? So many. First and foremost, so we know that the people who stood against Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam were not just these made up figures. These were real people. And Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala names one of them. The second thing is Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala very clearly tells us what will happen to these enemies. Right? And Abu Lahab was one of the first people to become the enemies of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So he would mention my name in a lesson for everyone that comes after. That this, is, this, this will be this person's outcome. And it's not that Islam is a religion of the Quraysh or the religion of Banu Hashim or Banu Abdul Muttalib. It's the religion of the awliya of Allah in the muttaqun. That you could be an uncle of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and this deen will call you out and the punishment of Allah is waiting for you in the Akhirah. This is not a family faith. This faith is for the friends of Allah. It's for people that are conscious. It's for those who are willing to sacrifice for the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here, Imam Ghazali shares this beautiful reflection on teaching. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us tawfiq. With that, we'll conclude here. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts and grants us wisdom, calmness, softness, and allows us to be those who teach uh, in the method of, in the teaching style of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وصلى الله تعالى على سيدنا محمد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته